Good morning. <clears throat> it's hard to follow a comedian doing the announcements, you know. Um, but you get used to George. I'm thinking, though, I bet people are wondering, what are these panels coming up about? <laughs> sex and the single life, sex and marriage, okay. You got to tune in to see. Well, welcome, everybody. So glad you are here with us this morning uh, as part of our service, whether you're here in person or here online. Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, if you happen to be new, uh, my name's Don. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if you are new, you've kind of come in the midst of where we've been for some time working through a series on the book of 1 Corinthians and teaching through that letter. And uh, so that's what we, where we are today. Today we come to chapter 8 of that letter. And so if you want to pull out your Bible app or your Bible and open to 1 Corinthians 8 or you uh, um, want to just follow along, we'll have the kind of the verses up on the slides on the screen as well. Well, you know, I have to confess that I have always been a big monster movie fan. Uh, ever since I was growing up as a little kid, I just love monster movies. And if you are, uh, by any chance, a monster movie fan, um, probably one of the movies that would have to be on your top five all-time list would be the original Jurassic Park. I mean, that's, that's got to be one of the greatest monster movies of all time. And there's a particular scene from that movie, one of my favorite lines, uh, and it's also a line that's kind of been used in a lot of other contexts as well. But in this particular scene, the, uh, the, cre the designer, uh, John Hammond of the park, and, and the lawyer who works for the park, who will soon take an early exit as a T-Rex meal, um, but they're uh, sitting in a conference room and with the main characters uh, in the film, and they're kind of talking about all the wonders and amazing things that they've been able to do at this theme park. And uh, Ian Malcolm, who is the kind of wisecracking scientist played by Jeff Goldblum, is raising some critiques and concerns about the danger of what they're doing in uh, having created this dinosaur theme park. And so as this conversation goes back and forth, John Hammond, the designer and creator, says to, to Malcolm, he says, I don't think you're giving us our due credit. Our scientists have done things which nobody's ever done. And Malcolm looks at him, and this is the line, he looks at him and he says, yeah, yeah. But your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. You see, the people that created that theme park, they had an incredible amount of knowledge. Yet there is a sense in which that knowledge blinded them to the danger in what they were doing. They thought they were doing something that was good and right, but it turned out to be something that would wind up being damaging and destructive to others. You see, they were so taken up with what they could do that they failed to consider what they should do and how what they were doing might affect others. 
And you know, I think sometimes we can have that same problem as Christians. As we grow in our faith and our knowledge of Scripture, we come to know and understand more about spiritual truth and God's Word. And oftentimes there is a freedom that comes with that spiritual knowledge as we grasp more deeply God's love and grace and the the truths of the gospel become more real to us. I mean, Jesus even told us that that would be the case. In John 8, 31 and 32, Jesus said this. He said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. See, spiritual knowledge, it's a good thing. You know, one one writer said that ignorance is not a Christian virtue, and, and that's true. You know, but true spiritual knowledge involves more than just knowing spiritual truths. It also includes how we use that knowledge and considering in love how it affects other people. You see, true spiritual knowledge Considers that just because we can doesn't always mean we should. And this is the issue that the Apostle Paul is addressing in our text for today in 1 Corinthians 8. And we're going to cover the whole chapter, verses 1 through 13. So let me give you a little context as to what's going on. As we reach this part of his letter, he is, uh, in this section, he's responding to some concerns or questions that the Corinthians have raised to him. They have apparently sent him a letter, which we don't have a copy of, but in that letter, they raised a number of issues, and he is sort of systematically going through and responding to their questions. And one of the issues that they raise has to do with eating food that has been sacrificed to idols. And, uh, and, and so to kind of understand this, what, what it is is um, in Corinth, the temples, the idol temples, were really the social center of kind of the culture there. I mean, the, the, they were not only places of worship, but the sacrifices that were made there, only part of it, the, the meat was used in the sacrifices, and the rest became kind of these feasts and meals that were regularly going on, and they were kind of like the restaurants of our day. This is where everybody hung out. This is where you kind of gathered for social activities. This was like the social and cultural center of Corinth, and so... Some people, some Christians have kind of in their understanding, now that they've become believers, they understand that these idols, they're they're not really real. There's nothing to them. They're just false. And so they feel free now to be able to still go and participate in those feasts and eat those meals in the temples and not be bothered by them because in their mind, it doesn't mean anything. Yet there are others who are still uncomfortable with doing that. You see, for them, these meals are still associated with the worship of those idols, and they are just not comfortable participating in those things in light of their, how they would understand their faith. 
And so in his response to this, so they're, they're kind of asking Paul, you know, well, what do you have to say to us about this? And in his response, Paul doesn't take a particular side on their question here, at least in this chapter. He doesn't say, well, you should do this or you shouldn't do that. But there's something more important that he wants them to see in how they relate to their spiritual knowledge and freedom. And really, I think the big idea, the main thing that he wants to communicate through this chapter is that true spiritual knowledge shows itself in love. Say that again. True spiritual knowledge, true spiritual knowledge shows itself in love. So as we look at this chapter, there's three things we want to look at here that I think help us see this. We're going to look at the principle, the problem, and the practice of love. So before we do that, let's take a moment and pray and ask for God's help. Lord, we ask for your grace this morning as we look at this chapter. And Lord, in many ways, this is something very distant from our reality of idols and temples and food sacrificed idols. Yet, Lord, in your wisdom, even as Paul addresses this issue, he addresses it from a principal position that is relevant to us all. So, Lord, I pray that you would grant grace, that your word would speak to us today. And, Lord, you would help me, Lord, in the power of your spirit to speak clearly and accurately, Lord, the things that you want shared and that you would work in each of us here, Lord to accomplish the good purposes that you have to bless your people today. So do that, I pray, for your glory and the good of your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's begin with the principle. So let's start with verses 1 through 3. Let's read those verses together. Paul says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that... All of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. See, while this issue of eating food that's been sacrificed to an idol, it sounds kind of distant and strange to us in our Western American culture, there, there really are many parts of the world where this is even now a very real and present issue for believers. And while the specific issue may be foreign to us, the principle that Paul lays out in this chapter is very real and relevant for us today. And so he begins by quoting a line from their letter to him where they say, all of us possess knowledge. See, the Corinthians, they were enamored with the concepts of wisdom and knowledge and how important knowledge was. They saw knowledge as the key to maturity and spirituality. I mean, they were big on the rights and freedoms that their knowledge about spiritual truths gave them. You see, they saw knowledge as the main emphasis and goal in their Christian lives. But Paul wants them to see that while knowledge about spiritual truth is a good thing, their emphasis is all wrong. 
He says in verse 1 that this emphasis they have on knowledge, it just puffs them up. And you get the idea of being puffed up, right? I mean, puffed up is this idea of being self-inflated. You know, makes us look bigger than, than we really are. Seems to make us look more significant, more important, more impressive. I mean, if you want a little picture illustration of what that is, if we could pull up that picture. That's kind of what it means. I mean, you, you get it. The blowfish, right? What's he trying to do? He is puffing himself up so then he can look more impressive than he really is. And that's what knowledge, not used wisely, does in our lives. And really the wording in their quote in verse 1 is revealing about their attitude because they, they don't just say, well, we know this or, or we know that. They say we possess knowledge. The, you know, this knowledge says something about them in their eyes. It's a statement of their spiritual maturity. They've arrived when it comes to spiritual knowledge and they know. It's interesting, in verse 2, Paul says, if anyone imagines that he knows something, the word knows there, uh, is in the perfect tense, and it has this idea that this is a full and complete knowing. In other words, they know. They've got it down. They believe God has given them this knowledge and that all Christians should know like they know. And they were quick to look down on those who didn't know like they know. And they felt entitled to exercise the rights and freedoms that their spiritual knowledge gave them. You see, they were so caught up in whether or not they could that they failed to consider others in whether or not they should. And Paul says, using spiritual knowledge this way, it doesn't build anyone up. It just puffs you up and makes you proud and self-focused. It divides rather than unifies believers in the church community. So Paul says in verse 2, he says, if anyone knows spiritual truth like this, he says, you really don't know. You don't really understand what true spiritual knowledge is all about because true spiritual knowledge operates in love. See, knowledge apart from love just puffs us up in pride and leads us to think much of ourselves. But spiritual knowledge that operates in love builds others up. It's concerned about others it puts others' interests before our own rights and privileges and freedom. See, true spiritual knowledge, it flows out of loving God and having a relationship with him. So Paul says in verse 3, he says, But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. And there's a little bit of a debate over the actual translation of this verse. Some, a couple older manuscripts kind of have this idea where it's, it simply says this, that the one who loves knows. In other words, it's this idea that if you know knowledge like you Corinthians know it, you really don't know. But the one who loves, they know. Um, 
or in, in kind of the what we have in most of our uh, translations in the Bible, it, it's this idea that that knowing God and loving God, it, there's a love that flows out of that, that flows to other people and how we relate to them. See, true spiritual knowledge is much more than just knowing truth and doctrine. It lives out the practice of that truth and doctrine in the context of love. A love towards others that flows out of knowing and living in the good and grace of God's love for us. That's true spiritual knowledge. And see, without love, spiritual knowledge just really doesn't benefit us or benefit other believers at all. You know, this is a theme that Paul deals with throughout this letter because the Corinthians really struggled with this idea of how they dealt with knowledge and love. And in 1 Corinthians 13, 2, Paul says this. He says, um, And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. In other words, I could have all the knowledge, all the faith, all the, you know, giftings, but if they don't flow out of my life in love, they're not worth anything. See, knowledge in and of itself just puffs a person up. But knowledge that operates in love toward other believers builds others up and has great value. And so that's the principle that Paul wants them to see. True spiritual knowledge shows itself in love. So let's look at the second thing, and that is the problem, so we can dig into what's going on here. And let's start with verses 4 through 6. 4 through 6, Paul says, therefore, As to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. So in these verses, verses 4 and through 6, Paul affirms that what they know is true. In other words, their knowledge is correct, at least to a point. Idols don't really exist. They're not real. There is only one God, and those so-called gods that are represented by idols, they're, they're not really gods at all. Now, it's worth noting here that when we get to chapter 10, Paul's going to tell them that even what they know isn't fully accurate or complete. See, they don't know quite as well as they think they do. See, while idols are not really gods, they are associated with and connected to demonic powers. And in chapter 10, Paul will correct their knowing and thinking that it's okay for them to participate in those temple feasts as believers. 
But it's interesting that he doesn't start there. In other words, he could have just said, look, it's an idle thing, it's bad, don't do it. But Paul doesn't do that because he sees that there's a bigger principle, there's a broader concern about how they relate to their spiritual knowledge and how they relate to other believers and whether there's a lack of love and how they do that. And so he begins here in chapter 8 with speaking to the broader principle of how the use of our spiritual knowledge is to be governed by love. You see, as believers, we know that there's one God. We know that the Father created all things and made us for himself and that we love and serve him with our lives. We know there's one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, through whom all things were made. And it's only because of him and his saving work that we now exist in an eternal living relationship with God. I mean, is just the essence of the message of the gospel. You know, that God created human beings for himself, that they would love and serve and honor him with their lives. But yet in our fallenness, we have turned away from that. We've turned to our own way. We've rebelled against God. We've gone our own way and done our own thing. And we don't we don't care about what he thinks. We don't serve him with our lives. We don't love him the way that we should. And one day as human beings, we will face God's ultimate judgment as creator king for our rebellion. But yet, as Paul says here, God in his grace and mercy sent Jesus Christ, and if you ever, sometimes people say, well, where in the Bible does it say that Jesus was really God? Well, here's one place, that Jesus is the one through whom everything was created and through whom we exist. I don't know too many human beings that could make that claim. And so Jesus comes into the world to to take on human flesh, to rescue us from the consequences of our rebellion against our creator who made us for himself. And he does that by coming to be a representative for us where he lives that perfect life of loving and serving and honoring God that we have not done. And then he gives himself despite that perfect life, to die on a cross where he might take upon himself our sins, all the ways we have rebelled against God and take the judgment for them upon himself. That by faith, by seeing that this is what God has done and putting our trust in him, not just believing that somehow this is true in our head, but in our heart, casting ourselves upon him as our hope for salvation, that we can be forgiven and exist in eternity in, through him. And so all that we have as believers comes to us through him. We exist through him. And maybe you're listening today, maybe you're here today, and maybe, maybe you've never turned from your sin and looked at Jesus and taken him as your Lord and Savior. 
And that, the invitation to do that is, is open today. God invites all people to turn and look at Jesus and trust in him so that you can experience that eternal life that Jesus comes to bring. And so this is just the basic gospel message. So Paul says in verses 4 and six, four through 6, what you know about God, it's true. But in verses 7 through 12, we see the problem. So let's read those. Paul says, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Now, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. See, verse 7 tells us that not everyone in the church at Corinth was at the same place in their knowledge of these truths about idols. Some, in coming out of a lifetime of idol worship, were having a difficult time breaking free from their old beliefs. And even though they had committed themselves to Christ, they still struggled with seeing those old idols just having real power and influence. And for them to participate in those idol feasts would be to participate to some degree in the worship of those idols. And to eat at those temple meals would violate their conscience. And their conscience is described as being Weak in that it hasn't been freed by the spiritual knowledge that Paul lays out in verses 4 through 6 that idols aren't really anything. And so the strong are those whose conscience has been freed through knowing the spiritual truth that idols aren't real gods, but for the weak to do that, their conscience would be defiled and they would sin against God by violating. You see, the relationship between sin and conscience, it's a little tricky in Scripture. See, there are many things the Bible calls sin that are just black and white issues that apply to everyone. Things like lying, stealing, murder, and the list could go on. But there are also things that may be sinful for one person, but not for someone else. And what makes it sinful or not has to do with their conscience or their convictions about it. One of the places Paul makes this 
clear is in Romans 14, in verse 23, as he's talking about the differences in convictions that people have surrounding what kind of foods it's okay to eat. Some people felt freedom from the old kind of Jewish restrictions on eating certain kinds of foods and not eating others, and others still felt that they needed to honor those in their conscience. And so as Paul addresses this issue, he says this, he says, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. What a fascinating statement. Paul says that if you believe in your conscience that it's wrong to eat certain things, you shouldn't eat them because for you to do that you would be violating your conscience. You wouldn't be able to eat in faith that this is okay. And that for you would be sin. And so some things can be sinful for one person, but not for another because their conscience is in different places. Now, what makes it a little tricky is that our conscience is not infallible. It can be wrong on things. It needs to grow at times. It can be incorrect. It can grow and change over time as we grow in the knowledge of God's truth. And to be honest, it should grow and change over time as we mature in our faith. This is one of the reasons why I think Paul affirms the truth of what these Corinthians know in this passage because he wants to speak to the weak too and he wants them to know that yes, some of these things that you're being told, they are true. And he wants to encourage them to grow in their understanding. But the general principle in Scripture is that each person should respect and honor their conscience before God and what they believe is right or wrong. So here in our text, Paul reaffirms in verse 8 that food really doesn't make any difference in how we relate to God in our faith. But if you're a person who believes that eating in those temple feasts is wrong, then for you, it's wrong. And to do so would violate your conscience and defile it. And for you to do that, you would be sinning against God. So here's what seems to be going on here. See, the ones who felt free were encouraging and enticing those who didn't feel comfortable to join them in these temple feasts. They said, oh, come on, it's okay, it's no big deal, idols aren't anything, come on and eat with us, I mean, come hang out with us, you know, this was the social center of the city, so... So this was, they just said, come on. They want these, these other Christians to kind of be a part of the, the gathering, if you will. And, but these younger, weaker Christians who were more restricted in their conscience, their weaker consciences were being violated as they acted and stepped forward to do these things. And their faith was being damaged. And some were at risk of being pulled back into that old world of idolatry. And so in verses 9 through 12 that we looked at, Paul wants them to know 
that love doesn't do that to those who are weaker brothers and sisters. Love trumps our knowledge and rights and cares more about the spiritual well-being of others than exercising our freedoms. Love patiently builds others up so their conscience can grow and mature over time as God might work in them to do that. And so to entice someone to do something that violates their conscience is to put a stumbling block in their path, Paul says. I mean, that's that's a picture we can relate to. You know what a stumbling block is, you know? leaving your shoes on the step at night, you know, on the stairs. Uh, Except in this case, you're intentionally putting a stumbling block because you're trying to entice someone to violate their conscience. And a stumbling block is simply something that we trip over and it causes us to fall. And that's Paul's concern In this passage, when we use our knowledge and freedom in such a way as to cause others to stumble, we not only sin against that person, but we sin against Jesus himself who died for them. You know, this is something we we see in numerous places in Scripture that what we do to another believer, Jesus says, you do it to me. One of the places we'd see that is in Acts chapter 9 when it's talking about Paul's conversion. You know, Paul's riding uh, along on a horse and and Jesus appears to him and and knocks him off the horse. And uh, and in Acts 9 verses 4 and 5, it says this. It says, in falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, what's interesting is Paul never met Jesus. Paul didn't know Jesus as a human being. But when when Paul is persecuting the Christians in the church, Jesus says, you're persecuting me. And causing a weaker brother or sister to sin by enticing them to violate their conscience is something Jesus takes very seriously. Matthew 18, 6, Jesus said this. He said, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. You see, true spiritual knowledge knows that just because you could doesn't always mean you should. True spiritual knowledge doesn't insist upon our rights and freedoms at the expense of damaging another believer. True spiritual knowledge shows itself in love. Which brings us to the third thing I want to touch on from this passage, and that's just the practice of love. So Paul closes this chapter out in verse 13 where he says this. He says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, 
I will never eat meat lest I make my mouth stumble. Paul says here, I will never use my knowledge and freedom to be a stumbling block to a fellow believer. Love is the priority that shapes how Paul uses his knowledge and freedom. So how do we apply this principle in our lives? What does putting this love that seeks to build others up into practice look like when it comes to our knowledge and freedoms? Well, let me give you two things to consider drawn from this passage. Number one, this is the obvious one, I think. Never use your freedom and personal convictions to entice someone to do something that would violate their conscience. I mean, we're all familiar with the concept of peer pressure, right? We know what peer pressure is. But, you know, usually when we think about peer pressure, we often think about it in the context of people trying to get us to do something we're not really comfortable with, something we really would not choose to do, but there's pressure for us to do that. I mean, when I think about back over my life, particularly in the younger years, and I think peer pressure can be a particular challenge for younger people, but when I think back to when I was in college, I can tell you that most of the things that I did wrong, most of the things I got in trouble for, most of the bad decisions that I made were largely due to peer pressure, to people trying to entice and get me to do things that I wasn't comfortable with initially. And so we don't want, as Christians, we don't, we don't want to be on the trying to get people to do things end of that. We don't want to encourage, we don't want to entice people to do something that their conscience would be uncomfortable with. Now, while eating meals in an idol temple probably isn't a problem we can identify with, but there are many areas where believers have differing levels of conscience and conviction. It might be things like drinking alcohol, or what movies and TV shows are okay to watch, or modesty issues and what kind of swimsuits people choose to wear. So don't encourage or entice people to violate their conscience or conviction just because yours may be different. We should always respect the conscience of others. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't talk about these things. It doesn't mean we can't look at Scripture to try to understand spiritual truth better. But we should honor the reality that each person will stand before God on the basis of their knowledge of God's truth and what their conscience calls them to in honoring that truth. So don't be a stumbling block to others that would lead them to sin against their own conscience. Because when we do that, we both sin against them and the Lord who died for them. And on the other side of that, for those whose conscience may be more restrictive, you should honor your conscience. You should do your best to always want to do what your conscience would believe is right or wrong before God. 
and yet continue to seek to grow, continue to pursue a a deeper understanding of grace and gospel truths because the reality is in our humanity, particularly our fallen humanity, we are so prone to want to relate to God through legalistic ways. And the gospel has a lot to say in freeing us from some of those legalistic ways. So that's the first thing to consider. The second thing that I would consider from this, ask you to consider from this passage is just what about situations where we don't know people's conscience or convictions? I mean, maybe you're, you're having a group of people over for a movie night and you don't really know what their thoughts or you know, convictions would be on movies. Or maybe you're inviting you know, some people over for dinner and you don't really know them real well and it's your normal custom to have wine or, or beer with the meal and you're not sure what they would think about that. See, we don't know what their thoughts and convictions might be. And while I can't give you a specific list of do's and don'ts for the many diverse situations like this, I think the principle from this chapter is what is to guide us in how we handle these situations. Let love be the priority in how you navigate those times rather than prioritizing your rights and your freedoms to do what you could do. I mean, maybe we can ask questions to discern what might be best, or maybe, maybe we just choose a path that we feel won't cause a problem. But we handle those situations in a way that makes love and care for the spiritual well-being of others the priority. Because you see, true spiritual knowledge, if we really know spiritual truth in the right way, it can't be separated from love. Love is the very purpose and goal of all spiritual knowledge. The Apostle Paul says that in 1 Timothy 1.5 where he says this. He says, but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from a sincere faith. Just think about what Paul's saying. He says the goal, the purpose, the aim of all that we teach and instruct, all of the spiritual truth we try to impart to you has one goal. And that goal is love. And so if love is your priority, I'm confident you'll navigate those situations wisely. If I could have the band come and join me. You know, and there is really so much more that could be said on this topic that Paul doesn't address in this letter, in this chapter. He addresses these issues more thoroughly in Romans chapter 14 and 15, where he gets into this in much more detail about conscience and differing convictions and how believers are to relate to one another. And I think we hope to, be, to teach through those chapters sometime in the not-too-distant future. But here... His concern is that those who are more mature in their spiritual knowledge and understanding not use that knowledge and freedom in a way that causes others to stumble and fall. And so this 
This isn't about the person who just disagrees with you or is simply offended at how your convictions differ from theirs. That's not what this is about. You see, when Paul talks about the weak and the strong, it, it, that, those words, they kind of can communicate value to us, but in Paul's view, they aren't value statements because we're all works in progress, right? We're all working along the, the pathway of growing in our faith and knowledge of God and his word. And the, the strong are just those who are further along maybe and understand some of the grace and truths of the gospel and what God has done for us in it more clearly. And the weak are simply those who are not quite there and whose consciences may be a bit more restricted because they haven't understood all those things maybe as fully. So it's not a value thing. Because here's the thing to understand. While here, Paul's addressing the the strong and how knowledge can puff them up and they can be puffed up in their own convictions and, and beliefs. But see, the same can be true on the other side too. The weak can be just as puffed up in how they hold their convictions and the things they believe. And so, see, this is about the principle that spiritual knowledge, whether you're weak or strong, doesn't matter. But spiritual knowledge, apart from love, it just puffs a person up. But love builds others up for their good. And that love is to flow out of knowing how God has loved us and knows us, how he's been patient and kind to us, in our growth and progress, in our faith, in our understanding of spiritual truth. And that love is to be the ruling principle in our lives as Jesus reigns in our hearts. It is to shape how we relate to and deal with others. And it is to govern how we are to use our knowledge and freedom as believers. And as Jesus reigns in our lives through that love, there are times when he tells us that just because we could doesn't mean we should. Because true spiritual love or true spiritual knowledge shows itself in love. So let's close by standing together and singing this song and just asking Jesus to reign in our lives and our hearts through this love that we might be a means of his love and grace to us.